suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. You know, I saw an episode, I saw an interview with David Attenborough um, on 7.30 Report. Yeah, I saw that one too last night. And our impersonator sounds more like David Attenborough than David Attenborough does. (laughs) Smiley Owl, you did a great job on that intro. (laughs) Well done, Smiley Owl. Uh, This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. We talk about news and politics and sex and religion. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. All 12th men. Greetings, Earthlings and gentlemen. And Joe, the sound tech guy. Evening, all. Right. Well, dear listener, we've got the usual potpourri of topics that we'll run through. This time, quite a bit on cultural identity issues Quite a bit on Indigenous matters. Some of you who love our work and never disagree with us might find this is one of those episodes where you tend to disagree with us a lot because um, <laughs> we definitely um, don't fall into the normal leftish sort of um, theories when it comes to this sort of stuff. So we'll get to that. And, um, well, gentlemen, to kick off, the Archibald Prize. You've all seen it? Mm. Yeah. I've got it up on the screen for the people on the live stream. And so what we had was the grandson of Albert Namajira was uh, awarded the prize this year. And look, it's a contentious prize, it seems. People who pay no attention to art for 364 days of the year suddenly pay attention and, and judge whether something's good or bad. And it's, it's quite often where people say, oh, you know, they would have seen half a dozen of the of the finalists and thought, well, that was their least favourite, is often the case. And gentlemen, thoughts on this particular winner? Um, liked it, hated it, or just don't care? No opinion? I don't really understand art, so I'm not really qualified to um, give an opinion. Mm. It's looks a little bit childish, the... Um, Particularly the bloke holding the Aboriginal flag at the back of the uh, painting, he seems to have very exaggerated lips. Mm-hmm. And the bloke down the front, that's the guy that's um, giving the handshake of is that Adam Goodsy shake? Adam Goods yeah. and the and the painter and yep. the painter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have thought that his lips, the painter's lips, are looking a little exaggerated too. And the whole thing just feels a little childlike. I mm. mean, it, it's a hell lot better than I can do. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I can't draw or paint or anything like that. Yeah, but you haven't won the Archibald Prize no, for $100,000. I haven't $100, won the Archibald tri- <laughs> Prize. And yeah. I just look at it, I think it looks a little bit childish. Mm. That's well, just an opinion. Art was my, actually my favourite subject at high school, at least for a number of years. And um, I've seen a few high school... Uh, artist efforts, and it strikes me as a competent high school student effort. Mm. Not terrible, just competent. It's just a montage of, you know, five images just stuck on a a black background with a few red footprints. It's it's not a brilliant effort in my estimation. Yeah. Yeah. Quite far from it. And I did look at a few of the others that were entries and I thought there were several that I would have picked before this one, I have to say. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to most people that it was a political choice and, you know, even the title, you know. What was the title of it? Uh, uh, what was it called? I don't uh, If you find it, let me know. But um, prou- uh, Something like... Be be proud of who you are or something like that. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. So the trustee said, a brilliant artist, brilliant subject, a very rewarding winner. One thing he missed out on was brilliant painting. He wasn't yeah. prepared to go that far. <laughs> but, <laughs> look, um, 
look, art is a subjective thing and it is a matter of taste and you can't say somebody's wrong for liking a piece of art. But uh, And certainly my own taste in art has changed and I hope it has matured over time because I'm in the art industry selling materials and I see a fair bit. So I, you know, initially I really liked sort of things that were quite realistic, Mm -hmm. ultra-realistic things. And as I've got older and have seen more, I'm realising actually that's not quite what I like anymore. And there's sort of no point to a photographic um, painting that looks the same as a photograph. It's sort of what is the point? I quite like things that you look at them a bit impressionistic. You're not quite sure what certain things are. Um, It causes you to remain on the painting and and try and figure things out. Um, With this particular one, I think it falls into the category of what's called a naive style. And um, I would label it the bleeding obvious style. Well, (laughs) naive is has that childlike sort of quality to it that it does look like something a, a primary school student could do. And we're not Wikipedia and well, well, dear listener, you know, we're going to get into politics and all that ugly stuff later on, but we'll just spend a little bit of time on art. Cause <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? So if you're – like my art teacher said to me that there's sort of three steps to making a painting was um, you had to get the, the shape and the form correct in terms of perspective. Then it was a matter of getting the tone correct in terms of light and dark and shadow and highlights so that there was – you know, a variation in tone. And then the third thing is colour. Basically, if you get the first two correct, the colour doesn't even matter. That's why mm. you see portraits of people um, where the skin might be purple and the hair's green, but because the shape's correct and the tone's mm. correct, it doesn't matter what the colour is. So, you know, you don't have to have things that look exactly like no. what they are in real life. And and I don't mind things that are a little bit abstract where then there's not an intention to sort of copy something if it's leading you to some thought process. Anyway, I just get so uneasy looking at this painting. It just has the shapes and the proportions are so wrong in so many elements of it that I just, like the Adam Goods character in the background, his legs are out of proportion to the rest of his body. And even the artist himself with his right arm, with goods, his arms incredibly skinny and out of proportion, and mm. it's just got very large forearms yeah, in that picture too. It's just a very uneasy picture to look at. Where I keep looking at it and I keep going, "That's not right. That's not right." It, it doesn't. That's not right. Really, it's, display yeah. a high level yeah. of the skill yeah. of the artist, does it? Yeah. I mean, as you say, it's all mm. subjective, mm. and and in fact, I don't only like realistic uh, art at all. In mm. fact, my favourite was. Mm. Um, as a teenager at school, was Picasso mm. and other abstracts, abstract mm. styles. But um, but look, it just to me, it's it's just very simplistic. You know, it's yep. just a a bunch of figures sort of pasted onto mm. a black background, which to me doesn't speak to me of a, of a great sort of development of the idea. You um, know what I mean? Yeah. So. So anyway, that was the Archibald, contentious as always, done and dusted for another year. So, um, right, moving on to tougher topics. Um, We often talk about, uh, well, I've been on about the media lately and media bias and who do you trust and all the rest of it. And I find in my conversations with people that I'll say, you know, something about how bad is Sky News, for example, or Fox News? And then people will say to me, well, the ABC is just as bad. Actually, Paul, you might even say this at times. <laughs> um, but it, it's this sort of comparison of, of, okay, yes, Sky is extreme and biased and right-wing, but uh, the ABC is sort of equally biased, but at the other end. And it's very hard to measure these things to sort of I, – I, my personal feeling is that the ABC is more centrist than – uh, closer to the centre than, say, Sky News is. But I came across this thing where, um, which reminded me that the the ABC is under a, under basic rules that um, the normal commercial media is not under. So 
they're under a code of practice that says that um, – let me just find uh, – let me just find the correct section here um, – The impartiality provisions in the ABC's own code require it to demonstrate balance and fair treatment when presenting news and avoiding conveying a prejudgment. So they're not allowed to advocate, and they've got to be more careful in their language, otherwise they get pulled up. So there was a case where um, correspondent Jane Norman said the Victorian government's handling of hotel quarantine was a fiasco. And... She had to go through a process to justify using the word fiasco. Fiasco is an opinion. It's not a fact. Well, a fiasco... I think it was pretty much a fact about the Victorian quarantine. No, it was sorry, a cock-up. Yeah, but that's an opinion too, Scott. It was a cock-up is pure opinion. A fiasco is, a, is an opinion. It's not a fact. Well, it's a description. If I say something is a fiasco, I'm describing it as being... Um, poorly, uh, a poorly organised, dis- disorganised. That's um, a, that's an opinion. But, but what does the word fiasco mean? Uh, like a, a mess, you know, something really badly, uh, something gone wrong, really badly. Is it? Am well, I am I close? Considering that Victoria yeah. is now responsible for the lion's share of the um, uh, COVID infections in Australia, and most of them have happened since the Victorian quarantine breakdown. I think that the word fiasco um, works beautifully to describe the situation. As an opinion, it does. But it's still an opinion. So It's not a fact. A a fact has to be something that is objectively measurable. A fiasco is not. If it's it's demonstrated by a series of statements to say they didn't know who made the decision for private security guards, they couldn't tell this... If you if you give a litany of of facts that describe an organisation in chaos, you, it's that, still that an just, opinion. That justify well, well, it uh, is. Okay, it's a description. Yeah, descriptions yeah. are you know a yep. combination yep. of whatever is available in in the information, whether it's facts, opinions, or a mixture thereof. Yes. But, but- Fiasco still is an opinion, regardless of which way you you turn it around and try and look at it from mm. it. It's still an opinion, well, the, isn't the, it? The dictionary just says it's a synonym synonym for a complete failure, especially yeah. a ludicrous or humi- humiliating there you go. one. Ludicrous, humiliating. These are all opinions. Yeah, that's from Charlene Martin too. Yeah, but look, I, I have to say one thing that I get a little bit annoyed by, and not just the ABC, but reporters in general. When they're reporting on a you know a, a violent crime or or a, a tragedy where where somebody has been hurt you know or, or killed, mm-hmm. and I often hear reporters, including on the ABC, several times I've heard them say, um, the the locals are devastated or the locals are distraught is the word I often mm-hmm. hear. The locals are distraught. The people in the neighbourhood are distraught, and I'm like, really. So the reporter has gone door to door and asked all the neighbours, how are you feeling about this? And they mm. all say, oh, I can't stand it, I'm distraught, oh, mm. I don't know what to... You know, they make it, they, they're making it up. It's, mm-hmm. it's an opinion mm-hmm. and they're, they're presenting it as news, whereas they should be just presenting the facts as they see them without their commentary, regardless of whether they think it's a fiasco or the, the, the neighbourhood's distraught or whatever. I guess it depends on the evidence that they've seen as to whether the uh, whether how how much is I it, think is they ad lib a lot or not they yeah. ad lib a lot. But well, Paul, do you think um, do you think that an ABC correspondent should be able to use a word like fiasco when describing a government um, response to an issue like or, a, or I, I would or a, say that uh, as you said, they're supposed yeah. to be. Neutral. They're mm-hmm. supposed to be nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so describing the actions of one mm-hmm. particular government mm-hmm. as a fiasco mm-hmm. is an opinion. Mm-hmm. So I would say no. They shouldn't be making such comments about the behaviour of governments. Okay. So, well, so here's my point: is that any ABC reporter reporting on something has to bear in mind. Shit, I could be up in front of some 
internal review process here if I use strong language that is possibly opinion-based, whereas other news groups like Sky can get out there and say, Daniel Andrews is a disgrace, the Chief Health Minister is a disgrace, they should apologise, they should... Like they can That's use, right. they've got a license to use a lot more emotive, opinionated language Absolutely. that the ABC shouldn't use and because the ABC mm. is supposed to be neutral, yeah. non-partisan, non-judgmental, mm. and just presenting the general public with the facts as as they mm. find them. So I think you'll find that's the case. Well, as I said, so, so, I, I regularly hear ABC reporters ad-libbing with their own you know, Well, they can be hauled before um, yeah, in you know, review people. I don't think that should be their motivation, you know, avoiding trouble. I think mm. their motivation should be doing their job in the correct fashion. But just going towards my argument, when I say, look, I don't think the ABC is as extreme left as say Sky News is extreme right and one of my arguments will be, well, they can't actually give opinions and yet because they, they do. Get, well this particular person was hauled up um, and had to go through an internal review and I've got a link to an article from the first of May two thousand and eighteen um, where uh, a statement contained in an ABC News report breached the impartiality provisions of the ABC Code of Practice. The Australian Communications and Media Authority has found. The authority investigated a complaint about an ABC News report broadcast nationally on the 10th of October 2017 covering a climate change speech by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. The investigation found that the report generally demonstrated fair treatment and open-mindedness in the way it presented Mr Abbott's views. However, uh, a statement made by the ABC's political reporter that Mr Abbott was, quote, the most destructive politician of his generation, end quote, wow. was declarative and not in keeping with the scope of factual matters presented earlier in the report. So that reporter got wrapped over the knuckles for saying Abbott was the most destructive politician of his generation. Probably quite rightly, I would say. Well, given that there is this constraint on ABC reporters... I I agree with you. And in that report, they're saying, look, this is only the second breach by the ABC of its impartiality rules since 2011. Now, tell me that if you're a politician, conservative or otherwise, who doesn't like what the ABC has said about you and thinks they've breached the impartiality rule, you'd be straight on to the Australian Communications and Media Authority saying, tell those guys to retract. So... If I you can it, be bothered. I, well, you know. you know, I'm sure these people I, can be. I dare say they don't all. Yeah. But I'd Paul, say a lot of but, them do. But, Paul, yeah, really? but Paul, when you're saying that you think it happens a lot, this report says they've only had that case in 2017 and one in 2011, mm. and given the incentives for politicians and others to, to shut people down, I think that's a fair indication that they tend to steer you away from that sort of language. Australian politi- politicians have a high incentive to shut down journalists? It wouldn't only be politicians. It would be other business people or other people that the ABC might criticise in a similar way. They, like, like anybody could go. Yeah, I dare say most politicians have got a lot more on their plate than you know chasing down a, well, an ABC reporter. I think this current government is on, an, is on a... Is on a mission to get rid of to get rid of the ABC. Mm. So whatever problems they could stir up for them, they'd be wanting to do. I would have thought. So, um, so yeah. So that's uh, part of media bias, and I've also got here. Okay, um, you're a fan of um, Media Watch, aren't you, Trevor? Yes. Did you watch it last night? I think so. What did you think of the first story? Remind me. What was it about? First story, and I don't always watch it every week, but I did last night, funnily enough. Uh, First story was about a woman who I think is likely certifiably unhinged, like certifiably unhinged. You know, she was a a bit of a crazy, you know, a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And she um, she had made a podcast 
about somebody quite defamatory. I think it was was it a couple of politicians anyway, right. and she was taken to task for it, and um, the court found against her and awarded the uh, is it the complainants? Yeah. The anyway awarded them something like eight hundred thousand dollars damage or something for damage to their reputations or. Mm-hmm. It was a defamation type thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's clearly not a person with a lot of money. Mm. And they said that they believe she's left the country and gone to New Zealand. But she was a maddie. You know what I mean? Right. Not the sort of person I thought was worthy of the first sort of five, six, seven minutes of a 15-minute program about the Australian media. Right. She was clearly... A maddie. Why would they? Why would anyone? And it seemed to me that the um, who's the guy who runs media? Well, Barry. Yeah. Why did he want to? I mean, he so has a podcaster got fined or got a, a claim against them of she, nearly a million dollars. She's an I, individual. I was probably interested in that person. Article, so. Okay. I don't think she has any kind of regular, popular, you know, m- mainstream podcast. It's just something she she put on the internet herself. Right. You know, when and, and they showed, he showed several clips of her talking to camera. Yeah. And when you see them, I think you'd agree with me, this woman is unhinged. Right. Why would you bother putting up a crazy person on TV to fill in five minutes of your program? She mm. clearly was, was was a maddie, not worth the time well, that's a- and effort of putting her on TV. You know what I mean? Can you do me a favour and just lower your microphone slightly because yeah. with this new setup, you're sort of uh, – you're- Plosives are popping. Okay. That'll be better. That'll be good. Yeah. You, have, you have the top now. But you know so, what I mean? Mm. It seemed to me that she was a person who needed sympathy rather than public ridicule and mm. damnation. Well, I think it's an interesting one if a podcaster gets hit with an $800,000. Yes. I find that an interesting topic. So, yeah, yeah, a cautionary so. tale. Mm. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yep. As Kobe in the chat room says, bloody podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> Eric says Abbott was as destructive as Howard. Um, so there we go. Was Abbott as destructive as Howard? Yeah, I think yeah. that's a question. Cool. Oh, was yeah. Abbott as yeah. destructive as he had? Good question. Uh, uh, oh, that's, that's picking between two bad apples. Lucky Eric yeah. doesn't work for the uh, ABC. Howard, 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 was, Howard was more destructive because he was just in longer. He got a lot done. He got a hell of a lot done. And, yeah. you know, you, you just got to look at the middle class welfare that we're, mm. we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Mm. All that's got Howard's fingerprints on it. Yep. And... If Morrison has any sort of balls, he will actually undo some of that, but I mm. doubt he will. I guess it said Abbott was the most destructive politician of his generation. So does that mean Howard wasn't in his generation? Uh, I don't know. I would have said so. Uh, but Abbott was in um, opposition. Yeah. And as Dr. No, in mm. opposition, he was very effective. Mm. Mm. Effective for the Liberal Party. Uh, effective as dis- uh, destruction, as, yes. As an, as an opposition leader, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay, so that was that. Um, I've got also a link to an article where people still trust the ABC compared to commercial media. So despite um, the complaints levelled against the ABC and there was uh, a survey done of 1,500 Australians about who they trust, um, five was a maximum for trusting and a one was a do not trust <laughs> and things in between showed different levels and... The ABC scored 3.47, whereas commercial media scored 2.62. So people, Australians, at least from this survey a couple of years ago, still trust the ABC. And that was even the case with um, with uh, sort of conservative voters still, um, whether they were liberal or one nation, still thought that the ABC and the SBS were more trust. You could trust them more than the commercial media. And just in that... You're just going to do what I do. Yeah. Just record what you want to watch. That way you can skip through the crap like Adam Band on Sunday morning on the, on the Insiders. You just mm. skip through it. Mm. You, know? you didn't watch the interview with Adam Band? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to listen to the man. He just makes my skin crawl. Mm. <sighs> yes, what can, what can you say? He's in the Greens. Mm. I know not... he's in the Greens, but, you know... It's <laughs> just... When we do Vote Compass, you end up closest to the Greens. I end up... In policy um, terms, yeah, somewhere you end between up, the Labor Party you end up and the where Greens, you should be a Green. You are closest to the Greens when we do the when you do the vote compass. Well, so, so, I think you've got they a lot must com- be confused if they're you've, somewhere near me. You've, you've got a lot in common with the Greens because <laughs> a lot of their social policies are right up your alley. Uh, do you know, so, I mean, uh, so, you know, when the Greens first came on the political scene, 
you know, as a, as a group dedicated to protecting the natural environment, I thought, good, you know, we need something like that in in mm. Australia. You know, mm. the environment deserves to be protected and needs to be protected. But um, gee, they've gone downhill since then, haven't they? Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see next time the election comes around how you go on the vote compass and whether you're still as green as you were previously. Yeah, you know what they say: greens turn red faster than a frog in a blender. <laughs> right, this one won't. I've been interested in this whole China debate, and, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that was getting me was that. In this COVID situation, a lot of people on the conservative side are saying the economy is important. We have to get the economy working, and if it costs a few lives, doesn't matter. We need the economy. Yet when it comes to China, they've been we've got to do something about China, and it doesn't matter what happens to our economy. Mm, that exactly. part I couldn't understand. It's a very with, different problem, Trevor. With, you may have noticed that. Uh, well, one one is a microbe, the other one is a global superpower. Well, in, in both questions, there's a trade-off between the economy and something else. One, it's human lives, and the other one, it's human rights. It's a similar sort of trade-off, and I haven't been able to grasp why so many conservatives were happy to stir up a fight with China and cause an economic problem when normally, fight? when normally when normally they would be wanting to protect the economy and put up with almost any shitty human rights in China provided the economy mm. was uh, going well for Australia. It, it just didn't uh, make sense to me. And I've got some links to some articles where basically there's starting to be a bit of a split now in the conservative ranks. The you're not now hearing um, them all singing from the song, the same song sheet. So, um, so this is an article from the John Menadue blog, and um, he said that the sort of pro "let's take on China and bugger the consequences to our economy" are people like um, defence reporter Ben Packham and um, the Australian's Greg Sheridan. But at the same time now, from the Australian, we've got Glenda Corporal and also none other than um, Paul Kelly, who I think might be the editor of the Australian, who are starting to say, yeah, hang on a minute, China might actually be able to buy its iron ore from other places and this could hurt and what are we doing here? Maybe this isn't such a good idea. So um, Paul Kelly makes the observation that... Um, looking at why we've been happy to sort of attack China, well, there seems to have been a consensus. And he says, the domestic debate on China is being driven in one direction, in only one direction, because unusually the right and the left agree. The right sees Beijing as an existential danger and the left can't excuse China's human rights abuses and its evolving surveillance state. So that was an interesting observation, I thought. It is. mm. How's Landon Hardbottom feeling about China at the moment? Is he... Oh, he's going back. Right. He's going. He's he's locked out right now because China has closed their borders. So he's currently in Thailand. Right. But he is returning for the. Um, I believe the border was reopening in October sometime. Mm-hmm. He's planning on going back for one last year, mm-hmm. and he's going to finish up his contract and all that sort of stuff. So he'll be. Unless he gets a visit in the middle of the night by well, a bunch of... which is potentially possible. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And they yeah. ask him to come come see them the next day for a cup of tea. Exactly. Mm. You know, um, you know, he's he's heading back, but he's coming back to Australia in um, presumably June, July next year. Right. Okay. Have you guys heard of uh, McKinsey Consulting? I've heard of the McKinsey you, Report. You've never, you've never heard of McKinsey? Yeah, the McKinsey Report. What's the, no, that was the Kinsey Report, right. not McKinsey. You've you never heard of McKinsey? No, not so, until I've just started reading about them now. <laughs> not since you've read the, the notes on the screen that are exactly, in front of you. Yeah. No, seriously, McKinsey is a top-tier consulting group. Like, they do 
you know, really top-end mergers, acquisitions, uh, consulting with governments, um, incredibly expensive, uh, walk the halls of power. Like when you, you know, you know the likes of Deloitte and people like that, they're, they're right up there in terms of um, groups that are paid a lot of money by government for strategic advice. Um, very, very high-level group. Anyway, they've taken a look at this whole thing about shutdowns and the economy restarting. And they've got some graphs and charts and things like that. Um, but um, what they say is, oh, maybe I'll just jump to the conclusion. <laughs> the inescapable conclusion is that the uncertainty surrounding COVID-19 and its associated health risks has caused many individuals, households and businesses to opt out of normal activity, even if no formal restrictions are in place. So eliminating that uncertainty is essential to restarting growth. So this is the argument that we've been having over the last few weeks, which is even if you remove the lockdowns, the problem is that people are scared to go and do, to go out and also scared to spend money because they're uncertain of their future. So you still have a big economic problem. And uh, their advice from McKinsey's is that... um, you have to get the virus under control in order to create comfort amongst the population and then you can have your economy going again. So that was their advice and they're by no means a left-wing think tank. They are on the, no, they're, not. they're in corporate land as thick as anybody. So, um, And I would yeah. just, I'd suggest that Victoria has listened to that advice because they've crushed the virus now. Mm. They've got it down to I think there are only five new infections in the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And they've got their they've got their contract tracing and all that sort of stuff on top of the game now. So they go out and they find where they've come from. They get the contacts and all blah 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 blah. And you know when they open up again in the next month or so, I think you're going to have a dramatically improved economy. Mm. So good luck, Victoria, with that one. Mm. So anyway, there's a link there to an article by McKinsey um, saying exactly that. Uh, put that in your Arsenal of arguments. Those who want to uh, follow what we're what we're arguing. If you want something to describe as a fiasco, mm. it's the Victorian government's handling of the pandemic. Well, and that's it's my what, opinion. That's, of course, that's what the ABC reporter did and got in trouble for because that was yes. There you go. Okay, but it's an opinion. We're allowed to give our opinions on a podcast. The ABC is not. When, and that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Let's really step into some dangerous territory now. Ooh, the Indigenous round. Netball. What could be <laughs> What could be a trigger? Yeah, you'd think it'd be very safe, wouldn't you? Netball as a game. Yeah, it just it didn't even have Israel Folau on it. No. But it's got it's it's got some Israel Folau sort of had his wife in it. Was she playing in that oh, game? Oh yeah. She's she was wa- in that actual game, was she? Oh she's one of the top uh, netballers. Yeah, but was she in that particular game? Not no. that particular game, no. Yeah, but okay. she is in the competition, yeah. has been for yeah. so, of years. Dear listener, uh, in netball, they had an Indigenous round. And as we know, (laughs) an Indigenous round is designed to celebrate... And it's fraught with terrible political risk. Celebrate the the activity of Indigenous ladies, girls in netball. And what happened was that during Indigenous round, the Queensland... Uh, Firebirds happened to have the only Indigenous player in the competition. It was the mid-quarter, <laughs> Gemma Mimi. Wouldn't was, you think there'd be more Indigenous players in netball? You would think so. You would think so. It's in we top, see a fair well, number this is in of... Top level, this was in top-level netball. Mm, yes. but, but you see a fair number these days who mm. come from the ranks mm. of the uh, migrant African community, mm. for example. Mm. I would yeah, have thought... They're not Indigenous, though, are they? No, but I would mm. have thought Indigenous players would have been... You know, into netball, you would have thought like they are into lots of other sports. Mm. The whole, I heard about this a week or so ago. Can I, was on, okay, can I just finish giving yeah, the facts? Sorry. So basically, um, she'd be involved in the promotion and of the lead up to the round. And come game day, however, um, Mimi was left on the bench and didn't get any court time at all during mm. the Indigenous round. Sorry, Scott, go on. 
Well, that was the whole point I was going to make, was oh. that the indigen- the one Indigenous player didn't get any court time. Yes, mm. during the Indigenous round. Now, exactly. why was she not given any court time? Well, the Queensland Firebirds said, um, quote, um, and this is from the coach, I think, the decision not to put Gemma on the court was the right one from a game strategy perspective. However, we misread community expectations and the significant of significance of Gemma's court time in the game in this round. Um, actually, um, there was a bit more that I wanted to find there, but the reason why she wasn't um, basically the coach and the playing group decided that for this particular game. She wasn't their best option. Maybe it was the matchups with the other players or whatever, but they'd made a decision based on netball tactics not to play her in that game. Mm. So, um, well. Which is a fair call by the coach, you'd think. Yeah, but if it's an Indigenous round, surely you should be embarrassed if you've only yeah. got one Indigenous player who's on the bench the whole bloody time mm. and then you've got... You know, I would have thought that Indigenous round, you wouldn't care how you played. You just want to have an Indigenous team yes. on the court. I would have expected an Indigenous team rather than just one Indigenous player sitting exactly. at the side I of the court. Exactly. I really think that they could have found a team of Indigenous girls to go out and play in an mm. Indigenous round. Well, yeah. Now, it might have but, been a shit performance, well, but it would have been okay because it, it would have been all Indigenous people. My, my reading is that this is the only Indigenous girl in the top level. In the top level. So I they, agree with they, that. They, so they'd have to go and find people from below that to bring them up for well, that Indigenous well, round. What, and play against the other top level no, white no, girls. No. That, that, as, that a friendly, have, as a friendly, as just a friendly. to promote the game right, to right. Indi- other Indigenous girls. Right. Well, wouldn't you, wouldn't would you think that would have been thought, a good idea? I would have thought with an Indigenous round, you'd have the mumble against up Indigenous people, wouldn't you? You'd have Indigenous fire because in rugby league, Indigenous New South Wales, wouldn't you? In rugby league, right, they as do in that. rugby league, they yeah, do. they but have an got, Indigenous team but, versus but, a non-Indigenous. But they've got enough team, good Indigenous they? players to to muster up a proper team. There's some very good Indigenous players in rugby league, yes, and in it's ASL. Surprising, there's not enough in netball. But hmm. but here's well, the problem is the very concept in the beginning of an Indigenous round, like. That's just fraught with yeah. with danger, and, and it's it's kind of inconsiderate, if nothing else, isn't it? It's a little bit insensitive to have this girl sitting there who thinks, "Wow, this is my indigenous round. I'm going to get yeah. out there and show my people, or yeah. show everybody, yeah. that indigenous girls can play netball." She's done all the media all week. She's yeah. been interviewed about what it's I like mean, to be an indigenous player. How insensitive and of that's, those! That's extremely cruel to the cruel. girl involved. I agree. Very cruel. Very cruel to the girl involved. But, yeah. um, but the idea of an indigenous well, here's the other thing that 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 necessarily creates is that. Had she played, then they would have had to say to some white girl, look, you're actually our best player in this position on this day, but because your skin's not the right colour, yeah. uh, you miss out. Your ancestry this, is on this, wrong. On this particular <laughs> occasion. Now, they wouldn't have actually said it like they would no. have, but, but that would have been the truth of the matter. It would have. And that's terrible. It's that, racist. That, that's racist. It is. So people don't take into account that some... Somebody else would have been told, uh, bad news, wrong skin colour, you miss out because yeah. of skin colour. At right. least at least this girl missed out because not good enough for this particular opposition, not the right game style for the particular opponent. That's, that's easier to swallow. Mm. You'd be really pissed and say, well, I wish you'd have told me that before you started this frigging industri- you know, Indigenous yeah. round. I wouldn't Instead have done all the... Humiliating all the, her. Humiliated me. Like exactly. leaving her on the sidelines all, all, the it, it, whole game. Exactly. That was but, cruel. But I even agree. more horrendous would be to say to somebody, you're just the wrong colour. Yeah. Sorry, you miss out this week. The solution is... Don't have don't an Indigenous, have indigenous round. round. Non-racialised mm. sport. Mm. I agree wholeheartedly with you, but if you've got it, you've got to stick to the bloody Indeed. rules and you've got to fill it with Indigenous players and mm. you've got to move forward. Mm. And like I said, even if it's a shit performance, you've got to have it. Mm. Yeah, get race out of sport, I say. I agree get wholeheartedly with a, you, but we're, we're, stuck, we're stuck with it right now, so you've got to do it properly. Mm. Speaking of race, let's move on to Carl Stefanovic. 
saying. Oh, You're not accusing Carl of being a racist now, are you? No. Did I'm, he say I'm, the I'm, N-word or something? I'm, no, no. Um, so uh, he's hit back at reports that Channel 9 is the worst offender in the diversity stakes. Carl isn't diverse enough. He said that he, Carl Stefanovic, was proud of his diverse heritage and said his employer had always supported that. And his comments came in response to an article um, which uh, revealed the um, lack of diversity. Only 11.4% of on-air talent in news and current affairs is from a non-Anglo-Celtic, non-European background, Um, which means, and this reporter wrote, which means that for every Walid, Walid Ali... There are nine Carl Stefanovich. Well, he's got more of a, a deep tan, so, you've got to admit. So, so in this reporter talking about the lack of diversity and saying that for every Wallet Alley, there's nine Carl Stefanovich. Carl said, hang on a minute. He said, um, I was called a wog at school. <laughs> I'm a Yugoslav German of British, with British heritage and the surname Stefanovich. Yeah. Like, I was called a wog at school. I'm proud of my heritage. So he's saying... Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm diverse. He needs to apply more uh, tanning lotion. <laughs> so I just, res- it really worries me that we've got these filters on our glasses when we're looking at the colour of people that are giving us news. Mm. Now, it really is a concern that we have have to then give ourselves high marks or low marks depending on the diversity of who our news presenters are. Now, Li Ling Ching is an excellent news presenter on the SBS, Mm. but Mm. I don't think she's ever played up the fact that she's Chinese, does she? Well, she was probably hired because she was Chinese. Well, presumably because she was hired at the time when SBS was Mm. very much out there on the let's find people Mm. who are They're even more out Mm. there. Well, anyway, but, Mm. you know... She was hired because of her ethnicity, yeah. presumably. Mm. Now she was a good presenter. I she agree. She was a very you. good presenter. Yeah. You know, she was excellent. But I don't think she ever played up the fact that she was Chinese. Is she even Chinese or not? She's Singaporean. Singaporean. Mm. Okay, I apologise to mm. Lee Ling. And most of them are Chinese. So mm. yeah, we can safely assume her ethnic background is Chinese. Oh, fair enough. But mm. um, you know, I I just think to myself, surely we've got to get over this mm. <laughs> whole thing. Mm. We've got to move on from this and start to realise that a prick of a thing happened 230-odd years ago. What mm. prick of a thing? Well, when the, the mm. Aborigines had their country stolen from mm. them. No, they didn't. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> a prick of a thing happened in 1788. You know, it was a horrible thing that happened to them. But we've got to get over that. We've mm. got to move forward as a single country, don't we? Mm, we do. You know, we've got to move forward. And if the best person for the mm. job happens to be a white Anglo-Celtic man, mm-hmm. he gets the job. Totally if the agree. best person happens to be a white Anglo-Celtic woman, she gets the job. If you bash that table once more, right. Joe the tech guy is going to bash you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Can I say one more thing about the Indigenous round? Just occurred to me. If, if we're going to have a round for our Indigenous brothers and sisters who make up what part of the population? Two, three percent? Um, Something uh, like that. It's around 2 or 3%. Either one, Scott. Why Um, why don't we have a round for every sort of subgroup in the population? Why just the Indigenous? Why not a a Kiwi round? Because I looked it up and New Zealanders in Australia make up something like 2.3% of the population now. Right. Why don't we have a a Kiwi round? Mm. Why don't we have a... Well, um, they weren't here first. You know, an that's, Irish that's, round. It's because they weren't here first. A German round. That's why. You know, a Dutch round, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So much of this comes down to who was here first, essentially. Yeah. Okay. That's how it works, Paul. Sorry. Yeah. What else have <laughs> I, I got on now? Um, oh, look, while we're, while we're in the mood, um, our, ch- our, uh, our chances of winning an Academy Award have, have plummeted as well. Our chances, as in on yes. the podcast? Yeah, well... Uh, just, Are we making a movie? If we, if we decide to move into acting. <laughs> so, um, I think I'd be willing to give it a shot. What about you guys? Well, well, that's fine, but we wouldn't get an Academy Award because we're not female or black. Well, Give us a chance, Scott. <laughs> You're going to go into the operation, are you? Well, no, I, I know where to buy some good face paint. Yeah. <laughs> 
To meet the on-screen representation standard, a film, this is for the Academy Awards, must either have at least one lead character or a significant supporting character from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group, and at least 30% of the secondary roles must be from two underrepresented groups, or the main storyline, theme, or narrative must be focused on an underrepresented group. So one of the leads, or at least one of the really big supporting characters, and 30% of the secondary roles from underrepresented groups. So because so, I'm gay, I could be the lead, could I? Yeah. Well, Why not? I don't know. Well, underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. Okay. So right, well, that it's, it's not a racial or ethnic group. No, but, they, no, it's not, yeah. but they do give, they do give um, status to gay people, LGBTQI, etc. don't yeah, they? I don't I'm, know if this counts for this Academy Award oh, rule. Really? So I, oh, you uh, guys are yesterday's news, Scott. Apparently so, yes. Yeah. yeah. So Stephen Which King... It's a bloody good thing, actually, because uh, we moved on. Mm, Stephen, Stephen King, a member of the Academy's writers' branch, uh, said he would never consider diversity in matters of art. Uh, it seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. So mm. now, where you is know, the, where's the diversity had... for the... In all of these things, you know, a poor working-class you know, kid from the... From the wrong side of the tracks, where's exactly. their representation? Exactly. I don't care whether they're black or white or Asian. Where the kids from Anala? Where where is the quota for the kids from Anala? That's what I'd like to see. Well, if we're going to have a quota, why not that? There's a bunch of um, South Sea Islanders and Vietnamese out mm. that way, so maybe they get well. But what about a poor white trailer yeah. trash? Wrong colour. Yeah. So you know. Why does it have to be skin colour? Why, why not? Know, I had a one uh, socioeconomic things. I had on a podcast I was listening to. It was a woman that I cannot remember her name, and she was asked about this in particular, and she said that she thought it was ridiculous because she said that if you're going back into a history, and you were going to do a history of the Second World War or something like that, she said, "What are you going to do? Are you going to have the Japanese being your?" Um, are they going to represent the underrepresented classes and all that sort of stuff? And are you going to have them? angelic is that the way you're going to represent them you know mm. you're going to gloss over the fact that they committed atrocities mm. you know it, it's really quite ridiculous if you look at it how it was going to be through ah bron one cube agrees with me she says how are historical events in movies supposed to be accurately represented when there wasn't a diversity and ethnicity in our culture a ridiculous idea i agree with you wholeheartedly bron one yeah yeah and you, you've probably noticed in um british period dramas recently they're including more and more non-white people um Right, they'll show a sort of a, a ye old village in the 1800s with yeah. a black person, right? With well, chimney were, sweeps and whatever. There were a very small so, number of black right. people in Britain hundreds of years ago. Oh, but that was because the the slave trade it, did actually yeah. make it to Britain. And, and I think you know, black people used to get ships on mm. uh, jobs on ships and things mm. visiting British ports. But right. they probably weren't but walking the down the street in a top would have been hat. extremely small, wouldn't mm. it? Mm. It would have been, yeah, absolutely. Mm. That a fair. Estimation, judges. Yeah, from what I've seen, yes. Mm. That the, the, there were a few. There, there were freed men yes. who made it back to the UK. Um, slavery in the UK was never a big thing. Mm. Um, it was always the colonies. Yeah. But, yeah, freed men could make their way to Britain. And, um, of course, there were uh, curiosities brought back to show off. Indeed. Um, as tribesmen were thought of at the time mm. as being something different. Yep. Mm. Right. Still on uh, these sorts of issues, let's wrap up another one. Um, you guys would have seen um, Google's street view function where you mm. can basically zoom in on a street and then pop yeah. down onto the ground and look around the street if you're going to drive somewhere you haven't been before or you want to check out somebody's house or whatever. Yeah, you use it to scope a person's house before you break in. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So... Uh, apparently, so what are you doing during lockdown, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, Uluru had a sort of um, um, a function where you could go to the top of Uluru and walk around and experience what it was like, even though it is now banned from from visitors. And um, and Parks Australia, with uh, acting on the request of the uh, traditional owners basically said to Google, get that off. 
Don't want that happening. Don't want people remotely dialing in and being able to remotely pretend that they're on top of Uluru and do a virtual and walk. Couldn't do a virtual Uluru. Walk. Yes, can't have that. No virtual footprints. No. And Google said, uh, "Fair enough." Um, um, Someone underst- might do a virtual shit on top of Uluru. Yeah, we've discussed the defecation <laughs> on the rock here. Well, we understand that the um, National Park is deeply sacred to the Anunga people, a Google spokesperson said. So there you go. Uh, you won't even be able to walk on it virtually because of the traditional owner's sacred views. Um, I'm speechless. It, it, I, I agree. It, it's it, there's You win yourself no friends with this stuff. No, they don't. You know... I can understand they wanted it locked up to stop people walking on it. That's fine. But to, you know, to not allow people to virtually walk up the top of it, that is crazy. Just claiming ownership of land. You know, if we... Particularly iconic uh, geographical landforms like that one. Yeah, iconic just, landforms should be... Public property, yeah, shouldn't they? Fencing off, off public land for small groups, if, it's just wrong. Someone will it's, correct us and say, no, yeah. it isn't public land, it's owned by those people. Yeah. But well, I, I, I think this is like um, the, the great European cathedrals, mm. which are sacred objects, um, but, but I think are, are recognised as being cultural artefacts that belong to everybody. Now, if you go to the UK, you pay... Forty pounds, I think it is, to get into Westminster Abbey. Something mm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Holy shit! That is a lot. lot of cash, <laughs> it is, <laughs> but but I can't see them shutting down virtual tours. Mm. I, I, I think there's a recognition that everybody has a right to um, experience uh, the the art that it is. Yeah, mm. Wouldn't you think they would want people to to understand it better? You know, I mean, museums have virtual tours now well, uh, uh, because they want to own... share what. What they have with everyone set up set up their own website, yeah. uh, interpreting it with exactly with their own interpretations, the the meaning they give to it, whatever. If if some rich billionaire bought bought uh, Bondi Beach and fenced it off and said it's mine, you can't come here. We've all got it's, it's been just, tried. That's just that's just outrageous. It's been tried. Do you recall? Um, what's the uh, beach near Rockhampton? Yapoon. Mm-hmm. Back in the 19, was it the 1970s? Uh, during the Joe Bajelka piece. Yes, time, a yeah. Japanese uh, yeah. company yeah. bought a section of land uh, behind one of the beaches at Yapoon, mm. a mm. very popular beach. Mm. And if you've been to Yapoon, you'll know it's a, it's a pretty long beach. It goes for many, many kilometres. It's a lot of mudflats, isn't it? No, no, not much. No, it's a real beach. Is it's it? a nice beach. Okay. There might be some mudflats around flats okay. around there as yeah. well but um i'm thinking iwasaki resort that's right yeah and they wanted they were going to fence off their yeah. section of the beach right yeah. in front of the resort yeah and the and the resort was right on the back of the beach so they were going to yeah. block it off and prohibit the general public from using that section of the beach they wouldn't mm. even be allowed to walk through it mm. and the uh the local people did they kick up a stink and mm. the government had to sort of virtually say to Iwasaki, sorry, but we mm. don't do that in Australia. Look, we did an episode, or I did one, on the commons. And to me, Uluru is part of the commons. I agree. And for all the reasons in that episode why it should be open, uh, mm. Google on our, you know, look at the search thing for our uh, episode on, on the commons. And to me, it's the same thing. Should it's be. outrageous that a group should should segregate itself off uh, what belongs to the commons. The yeah. generations that that come and go are entitled to the commons. Mm. Um, black, white or brindle, whether it's this year or in 100 years or 200 years, that the commons has to remain for the people. It's just... Do you yeah. think that in 200 years' time, well, I'm not going to have any forebears or anything mm. like that, but do you mm. think that your grand great-great-grandchildren will be doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, they'll be having this sort of conversation in a couple of hundred years' time? Because it seems to me that... Uh, no, how do I say this without getting ourselves in trouble? 
It seems to me that the culture of Indigenous Australia is probably going to be driven out by the forces of modernity. One would hope so. Except it's a money-making enterprise. It's an industry industry now. Mm. There's people with a vested interest in maintaining it. Mm. Okay, so so you think they're going to be able to um, charge people for walking up Uluru? I just think there are people who benefit from it who will want to maintain uh, this sort of thinking. Like the Catholic Church, you know, they get get newborn babies Mm. who do not have a Catholic Mm. stamp on their foreheads when Mm. they're born, Mm. and yet, you know, they're inducted into the church and then the church considers them their property Mm. and they make a lot of money out of, you know, perpetuating this myth of the Sky Fairy and, you know, them being the representatives of the I'm Sky not Fairy so on Earth. i that because, I mean, I've got a couple of adult nieces and nephews that have had kids of their own and they were stamped as Catholics when they were little and they've not had what, their kids stamped. What colour was the stamp? Well, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the whole point. It, it, it's just one of those things. They were really stamped? No, they weren't stamped. They were, what do you call it? But christened. Yes. They christened <laughs> as Catholics. <laughs> Catholics get baptised. Well, it's still the same thing with the water sprinkle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, but in Anglican, it's it's christened. Right. But it's the same thing. Catholics, it's two words for the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but in in the Catholic tradition that I was raised in, the word was baptised. Right, okay. It? So they were baptised as Catholic and all that sort of stuff, but they've mm. all walked away from their faith too because mm. it's... Yeah. So, so um, some of the argument around the, the stolen generation was that the... Um, the Aboriginals were going to die out because they would be bred out. Uh, and the stolen generation were the mixed race children. Mm. Uh, and they were to be rescued from a dying breed uh, mm. and, and westernised. Mm. And, and the question is, uh, realistically, um, as time goes on, uh, the Aboriginals will interbreed with the white Australians. Mm. Uh, and how many pure blood will be left? And eventually... Yeah, but that doesn't matter anymore because it's how do you identify? Yeah. So and you would have you can, seen plenty of be, pictures of Indigenous Australians, fair skin, freckles, and 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 red hair. That's right. And and if you identify as Indigenous, then yeah. then you are Indigenous. That's, so they get around that one. Like, look, this is probably a bit before your time, you young blokes. But back in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> There was a, a very popular pop song, which I liked, by an American group, and it was called Melting Pot. Do you know of this song? I liked right. it. And right. when I heard it as a you know kid in my probably mid-teens, I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And it was a song about all the different races intermixing so right. that... And one line in the in the song is something uh, about coffee coloured people making co- coffee coloured people. Right. And I, at the time, as a young white kid with very you know virtually no exposure to racism or the race politics or any of it, mm. I thought that makes a lot of sense. You know, mm. just everybody mixed up, and then nobody has to think that they're members of a you know this tribe or that tribe. Mm. But, and I still think so. I still it was an influential song on me as a as a okay. teenager. I can't play it, dear listener, for copyright reasons. Have a look. look it, it up. It's, Melting Pot. It's it's on YouTube. Melting Seneca, Pot by, um, okay. oh, the name of the group's on the tip of my tongue, but you'll find it. Okay. It's called Melting Pot. All right. Okay. Um, speaking of Catholics, last week I predicted that Trump would not nominate a Supreme Court judge because he would try and get his supporters to work even harder for him if he said he'd do it after he mm. was nominated. But I forgot one thing. The Christians. Well, no, I forgot that he's going to challenge the election if he loses. Mm, and, he's gonna, and he's going to want all hands on board in the Supreme Court, yeah. uh, potentially. I think that's what he did, or he just wasn't wasn't listening to my podcast. You know, it's possibly the right. other. Well, I the don't other. think he's got very much of an attention span. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yes, he's um, nominated a, a devout Catholic um uh, as his nominee for the Supreme Court, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett is her name. So um, she's a good Catholic. Five kids uh, from her own womb and adopted two others. So mm. seven kids. That's a 
a fair showing. Uh, I think she quit too soon, don't you? Well, graduated top of the class at Notre Dame in law school and uh, was an academic for most of her life and has spent three years uh, in one of the appeals courts and yeah, qualified enough to do the job probably, but uh, uh, fairly staunch Catholic and probably pretty clear on overturning Roe vs Wade. Mm. Have we discussed Roe vs Wade? Just... Um, Tell me if I'm repeating myself because I've I've been listening to Pep um, mm. playing extra podcast. Mm. Really good. If you it's want to know good, what's yeah, going on it, in American, to it, yeah. you listen to that one. Don't try that Pla- one. Planet Extra. Planet Extra podcast. Pep. Pep. Um, so uh, the guys who do Planet America, or mm-hmm. one of the guys, he teams up with a different guy and they do that podcast, and they're mm-hmm. very very good on American affairs. So, and also um, another podcast called um, Opening Arguments uh, on Legal Matters is very good on American Affairs. Anyway, um, when it comes to Roe versus Wade, so apparently the the decision in Roe versus Wade that enables women to more easily access abortion services in America is based on a right of privacy that is conjured out of the Constitution and even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that's a pretty shitty argument. Like that's, I think women should have the right to abortions, but not from some implied right of privacy that you guys have dreamt up out of the Constitution. I think it should come from, I think, some equality type provision that she thought was more appropriate. So, um, so it wouldn't surprise. Uh, so she kind of agreed with Scalia on on that issue. So mm. uh, it's certainly the legal scholars quite open them to them to say, well, the basis of Roe versus Wade is is just implausible. Really, it shouldn't be relying on privacy. And in the court, even though it was five four for conservatives, the Chief Justice Roberts, even though he would have liked to have made a conservative anti-Roe versus Wade decision, he has great respect for precedent. So he didn't want the Supreme Court chopping and changing. He thought if the Supreme Court's made a decision, we really should stick to it and not change willy-nilly. But Mm. now it's going to be 6-3. So even without... uh, um, Previously, he was able to hold the line on, on keeping Roe versus Wade, even though he disagreed with it but just because he liked the idea of maintaining precedent, uh, now 6-3, good chance to be overruled. So that will be an interesting shit fight yet again in the United it's States. It's going to be a hell of a shit so, fight yeah. because, you know, she's 48 years old. She's mm. got an appointment for life. Mm. You know, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg's anything to go by, she'll be there till she's – she'll be there for 30 years. Yes. You know, yeah. could be. Mm. Speaking of shit fights, there's one going to happen um, in Toowoomba as well. Um the uh, local member was Liberal McGrath. Um, no, um, McVeigh, um, sitting member, is Liberal and he's decided to resign. And the local branch, because it's LNP, are able to say, actually, we want this to be a national seat rather than a Liberal seat. So they're arguing over that at the moment as to whether it should be a national seat. But in the Senate, um, there's um, basically the Liberals' last election had a Senate winner in the first spot and the third spot, and that third spot was a bit of a lucky one. And the two people involved in that, McGrath and Stoker, are now fighting over who should be in the first spot. And... Um, Stoker, Amanda Stoker, is a really red-hot conservative, evangelical-type Christian, just our worst nightmare as far as we're concerned. Um, So she's battling out with McGrath to see who gets the top spot in the Senate ticket, and um, I'd put my money on her because I think the Christians will gather around her and give it to her, and apparently they battle over at Sky News because Stoker is a favourite of Alan Jones, and McGrath is a favourite of Paul Murray show, so they get on there and and uh, with their respective panellists and and uh, 
appeal to their constituency over via Sky News. That's how politics is being played out uh, at the moment. Right. Um, what else have we got? Uh, you know what, dear listener? I've got to get up really early and drive to Bundaberg, and that's four hours away. <laughs> so we're going to call it an early night, I reckon. It's like we're, we've, we've gone an hour. Might get a message from uh, Landon Hardbottom over this. Right. No, well, I don't know, Landon, what he's doing. But um, <laughs> Oh, by the way, oh, Blue Mink. Thank you. Um, that's it, yeah. Blue Mink. Yeah. Saying melting, melting pot. pot. Yeah, found it. I, I, I yeah. did look at the lyrics, and yeah. um, they're, they're not exactly um, to the modern taste. Okay. Do mm. Do you have them in front of you? Uh, what no. the world needs now is a great big melting pot, right. big enough, big enough, big enough to take the world and all it's got. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit of Red Indian Boy. Well, that's, that's not allowed. Mm. Why not? Uh, oh, lordy, lordy, mixed with yellow chinkies, yeah. Yeah, I like chinkies. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Chinkies. I, I, Bloody I, hell. Say that again. What does it say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, lordy, lordy, mixed with yellow chinkies, yeah. Wow. And the rest? Uh, what are the other colours they talk about? I'm just... Uh, rabbis and the friars, Vishnus and the gurus, we've got the Beatles or the sun god. Well, it doesn't matter what religion you choose. There you go. That's okay. a good one. Intermarriage of faith. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the world and all it's got, and keep it stirring for 100 years or more and turn out coffee-coloured people by the score. There you go. Right. That's my dream now. Right. That's your mission, dear listener. <laughs> go out there and create some coffee-coloured people. I've been doing my bit. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a quick one. I've got to head off. I've got a big day tomorrow. We'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Bye now. Bye, Bye everyone. It's a great Girl. song. I loved it when I was like, it was, I was only about 15, 14 or 15, I think, when it came out. It's a good song. Thanks, gentlemen. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners and that way look if we ended up getting more listeners and more money we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes provide some more content so it's up to you if you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.